And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. May God bless the reading of this word. I invite Pastor Jeff now to come and preach to us. So last week we introduced our mission statement. Bridging cultures to build a family in Christ. And it was the first side of this vision frame that we've been talking about. If you can kind of imagine or maybe see on the the PowerPoint, uh, if we can get it to show, there's this frame or this picture, right, that, that has this frame around it that kind of starts to articulate our DNA. And this frame begins to give shape and structure to this picture inside of where God is leading us as a congregation, And so each side of this this frame answers a different question about our DNA. This mission was looking to answer the question, what are we doing? We we gather together week after week. We attend small group. We we have lunch together. Like, what are all these things that we do together as Crossbridge? What What are we ultimately doing together? What direction are we headed in? What is our purpose? And this morning, we're going to be starting to look at the next two sides of this frame. So our core values, or you could call them our motives, and then also our marks. And a lot of churches, a lot of organizations have a set of core values. Right? You might work at a company, maybe at a school that has its own core values. You know, so I was curious, and to try and give an example, I looked up Meta's core values. So they have six. Now, some of them are move fast build awesome things, and live in the future. And they have a couple, three more, right? And so on their website, it, it says that these six values uh, are the signposts that guide our work, how we spend our time, and how we work together. By working at Meta, we each commit to bring these values to our work each and every day. And so if mission answers the question, what are we doing? Core values, again, we could, maybe we could call them motives, answers the question, why are we doing it? You know, these core values or these motives are shared convictions that guide the actions and reveal the strengths of the church. Our convictions as Crossbridge, you know, these values that we hold on to represent some of our most deeply held ideals. You know, they shape our ministry's ethos. They are a reminder of what is most important to our church or our congregation beyond what, would we, beyond what we would put in our statement of faith. And so maybe a, a simpler way to think about core values is this. 
It's not so much what we do, but what characterizes everything that we do. And so you might have two churches or two congregations that are pretty similar in terms of the size of the church or the size of the staff or the budget or the ministries, maybe even the location. And so we have Crossbridge, you and I. Maybe uh, we could say we have a hypothetical crosswalk, right? That's another congregation. And so between Crossbridge and Crosswalk, maybe there's a lot of similarities in terms of the things I mentioned. But these two congregations, these two churches, would still have very different assumptions and commitments driving their ministries, driving the things that they do together. You know, both are good, just different. And so you you might have similar churches, similar congregations that have uh, similar ministries, right? Maybe Crossbridge and this hypothetical crosswalk, you know, both have a sports ministry or a soup kitchen ministry. Or you have people who serve on worship team or serve the youth and the children's ministries. And, And they're all on the surface doing the same thing. But what characterizes those things, what they do might be very different, and so you start to, to kind of peel off the top layers and you get a scent of the things that kind of shape or drive what they do. All right, these are the, the things that you tend to kind of pick up on when you start attending a, a church for a while. You start to notice, oh, maybe like these are the things that kind of shape how they make decisions. Or these are the things that this is what they're known for. Or this is what Crossbridge is known for. And our our values hopefully should feel a little bit more actual values than aspirational values. And so this morning, we're going to be kind of talking about the first of our four new core values. And we're going to be spending the next four weeks to work our way through them. Our motives. So these are our four. For God, scripture-driven, better together, and servant-hearted. Again, it's not so much what we do but what characterizes everything we do, including especially our mission. So let's talk about our first core value, our motive, for God. So we're in Mark chapter 8. This is the passage that was read for us earlier. In this chapter, Jesus is, is walking with his disciples. He starts asking them, like, who do people say that I am? And his disciples start repeating all the things that they've heard, right? Oh, oh, some say you're Elijah, and some say that you're John the Baptist, or you're, you're one of the prophets. And so then Jesus asks them directly, but, you know, that's what they, who they say I am, but who do you, who do you say I am? And this is where Peter comes out. He makes this bold claim, this radical confession. He says, you are the Christ. The Messiah. Now, as the events unfold, what Mark wants his his readers to see is that Peter got the right title, but the wrong understanding, right? He picked the right word, got the wrong meaning. So immediately after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus now begins teaching his disciples what that actually means. And so he says in Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is what it means to be the Christ, the Messiah. He must suffer, he must be rejected, 
he must be killed and he will rise again. Jesus is teaching those, his disciples, those who are following him, and preparing them for what's going to happen. The road to the cross, his crucifixion. You know, sometimes I, th- I think we, we take for granted what Jesus is actually saying here. Because right? we live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of history. Like, we know, not just we, like a lot of people, whether we ascribe to a faith or not. We know, we've heard it before, like Jesus had to die on the cross. He died on the cross. He, he died for the sins. He had to rise and, and proclaim victory over both sin and death. Whether or not we actually believe in it. But, but for those of us who are Christian, we believe in it. It's the gospel. Right? But for Peter, this was not plausible for him at the time. It just didn't make sense. Right? Peter had a very completely different view of what it meant to be the Christ. Again, right title, wrong understanding. You know, for Peter, he was approaching it from a very human point of view. Like that meant uh, to be the Christ meant a, a military or a political leader coming in to bring Israel out from Roman occupation. He was thinking about power in human terms, glory in human terms, hope for Israel as a nation. And so one writer puts it this way, that for Peter, for the Messiah to die was unthinkable, but for Jesus, it was inevitable. And so Peter takes Jesus aside and starts rebuking him, right? The same guy who just a moment ago, he said, you're the Christ. Now he's like, no, 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 no. You don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus responds now by rebuking Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Can you imagine Jesus, the Son of God, saying to you, calling you out, and calling you Satan. That's rough. Now, was Peter actually Satan in that moment? Probably not. No, no, he wasn't. Was Satan controlling him? Was he possessed? I don't, I don't think so. But what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out what is characterizing what, what Peter is saying right now, what is characterizing what he is saying is satanic. That's a Bold, big claim, accusation. But it's Jesus, and he's calling him out because think about what Peter's trying to do. Peter is trying to keep Jesus from his mission. He's trying to keep Jesus from doing what he must do. Right? And it's not unlike what Satan was doing when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Right? Just stop fasting, turn these these stones into loaves of bread. Bow to me. It's because Peter is not seeing how God is working. He's not seeing things from God's point of view. He is not for God. He is for himself, for his own very human point of view. So Jesus begins with with talking about what, what does this mean to be the Messiah, to be the Christ? And then he launches into this discussion or this teaching about what being a disciple means, like being a Christian, being someone who follows Jesus. What does that look like? And and the two are incredibly intricately connected. And and that's important for us to see. Because right after he rebukes Peter, he now calls the crowd and his disciples 
to him. He says, you know, come here, gather around. Let me, let me kind of teach you something. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so this passage first began with Peter making a claim about Jesus. But to, to make the claim, like he's saying, You're, you are the Christ. To make that claim is also to put a claim on yourself. Right? To say, you are the Christ, it's not like us in America trying to study something in history and be like, well, Elizabeth II was the Queen of England. Right? She is the Queen. Right? As for some of us, most of us, it's very little relevance for us, implications for us. It's, or it's, it's not, to say you are the Christ, it's not like us examining something like a rock or a leaf under a microscope, right? And saying, you are a rock. You are a leaf. It has nothing to do with us. It has no implications for our lives. But, but to say, to claim you are the Christ is to also put a claim on our own life, right? A wrong view of Christ leads to a wrong view of being a Christian, of, of being a follower of Jesus. And so Jesus now begins to spell out what that looks like for his followers. They must deny themselves. To, to deny means to kind of sever a relationship with that person, that thing, such that they no longer are the ultimate determination. They no longer determine your identity, your life, your purpose. It's the same word that was used of Peter later on in the end of Mark when he denies Jesus three times, right? In, the, in that example, in that instance, Peter is disassociating himself from Jesus. He's severing that relationship. He's saying, you know, I had nothing to do with that guy, you know, Jesus. He has, he has nothing to do with me. You know, my life separate from his. I do my own thing. He does his thing. That's on him. He wants to cross. That's fine and good for him, but it's not for me. Now, eventually, Peter is restored, right? But here in Mark 8, there's lessons to be learned. And, and Jesus here is saying, deny yourselves. It means to be for God, not for yourself. It means that we orient our lives and our purposes to God. Like Jesus is putting it in like really absolute terms. Right? This is not a, a both-and situation. It's an either-or. It's a hard word. And it means that the throne of our hearts is not a love seat. It's a, it's a game of thrones. There's no room for two people or two things. It's, it's not like Jesus determines my direction and my purpose. But then on the same ground, also my... My career, my family, my, my own personal desires also determines those things ultimately. And then circumstances or feelings or whatever comes up will help dictate which one I listen to. Right? The throne of our hearts is not a love seat. It's not a two-seater thing. And neither is it a sectional or sofa. Right? You have these modular uh, furniture pieces now where you can add more seats as you uh, need move into a bigger place and you need, need more spots. It's not a, not a modular furniture piece, right? When, like when life is simple, 
Maybe when you're in college, although college can kind of be complicated too, like you just have your, your one seat in front of your desk, right? And it's just Jesus, right? Jesus sitting on the throne. But when life gets more complicated and there's more demands, there's more things, and well, let me convert the throne of my heart into this modular sectional sofa. Let me add one more seat to it. And let me add uh, another seat for this thing or that thing and, and so on and so forth. And so Jesus is, is kind of pointing out to be a disciple means three things. He lays it out in these few verses. To deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow Jesus continually. And so these next two parts are pretty significant, right? Jesus was, was talking about what it meant for him to be the Christ. He had to suffer. He had to be rejected. He even had to die. And this was the cross that he would carry, And now Jesus is saying that the path of discipleship for us is the shape of the cross. It presumes suffering that is modeled after Jesus. It presumes a sense of hardship and challenges and cost. Again, this is not, you know, a persecution complex or a martyr complex where we're like, you know, I'm just going to pursue whatever suffering I can find. And look at me, look at me, look at my badge of righteousness or badge of honor, right? This is not what Jesus is talking about. It's not some covert expression of narcissism that Jesus is laying out here, right? Jesus endured the cross And the cross was a a very shameful thing. It was not this badge of righteousness, like, look at me, that we might make it out to be today. But he endured the cross for the will of God the Father, for his mission, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And so to, to follow after Jesus continually, to take up our own cross, cuts against what we could call this hokey pokey Christianity, hokey pokey faith, right? Where we, we put our right foot in, put our right foot out, put our right foot in, and we spin it all about. And we do the hokey pokey and we turn ourselves around, and that's what it's all about. But this is the complete opposite of what Jesus is saying that being for God is all about. Is a modern spinoff of the hymn, The Wondrous Cross. And I like the lyrics because I think it captures what Jesus is saying here. The lyrics go like this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Content on all the things that we ought to deny. And then it goes to the chorus. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die, right? To deny ourselves and find that I may truly live. Right? To be for God then is to not be for ourselves. And part of why we do this is because we recognize the value, the worth of God's kingdom, of God himself. And how that is different than the values sometimes of our society and the world that we live in. So uh, Jesus continues in Mark 8, 35 to 36. Whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what is it profit, a man or a woman, to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, he tells this parable. And one night, a, a group of thieves breaks into this jewelry store. But rather than taking things, they end up uh, switching all the price tags. And so the next day, no one could tell what was valuable and what was worthless, what was cheap. And so the expensive jewels had suddenly become cheap. The costume jewelry, right, the fake jewelry, the plastic jewelry, which had been virtually worthless before, was suddenly of great value. And so customers coming in who, who thought they were purchasing these valuable gems were getting fakes. And those who couldn't afford the, the higher price items were leaving the store with treasures. Even just recently, the latest iPhone was released, right? And there was a glitch on the Apple website introducing the latest iPhone starting at $777,777 a month before trade-in. Like, what a steal, right? Like, we can trade in our old iPhone and maybe knock $200 off. The point is that, you know, that is a grossly overvalued. Jesus gives us this paradoxical statement that is challenging us, calling us to consider, to examine which life is of greater value. A life centered on ourselves and on this world that forfeits eternal life or a life dependent on God and purposed for him. Right, this is the first core value that we're talking about this morning, this motive, right, for God. And what we'll find over the next few weeks is with each of these four core values or motives, we paired it with a mark, the other side of the frame. And so, if we are for God, then let us become missional in life. Right? If core values are, or motives are answering the question, you know, why are we doing it? What characterizes everything that we do? Marks are kind of asking the question, well, when are we successful? Or, or maybe we could also pose, like, who are we becoming individually and as a church, as Crossbridge? Like, if, if we as Crossbridge are together on mission, bridging cultures to build a family in Christ, like, how do we know we're on track? We're on mission. What does that look like in the life of, of those of us who attend regularly, who are committed and engaged? Like, what does that look like in, in, in the life of a member of Crossbridge who is growing and maturing? Now, these marks, they're not meant to be a checklist, right, of things that we need to do necessarily. It's not meant to be this badge of righteousness or honor that we can show off, like a sticker, we got four stickers, right? They're the fruit of being transformed by the Spirit. And, and fruit that is, in our case, specifically tied, related to our mission up top and our motives on the side. Like if this is what we as Crossbridge value, if this is what kind of characterizes everything that we do, how does that show itself? How should it show itself? manifests itself in, a, in, in those of us who are growing and maturing, right? And, and, and to be honest, like, it should feel a little aspirational. Like, how many of us feel like we're this perfect, fully developed, mature disciple with no room, little room to grow? 
I think very few of us, hopefully none of us, right? But this is a, a signpost, a way for us to kind of point, where are we headed? How are we growing? What, who are we becoming as we follow Jesus? And again, our, our four marks, like, they're not meant to be all-encompassing. Like, I think many of you, we could think of like 30, 40, 50 things that could be on here, right? We could list every mark that we could think of, and then it'll definitely feel like a checklist, but this is just a primer, a, a way to get us thinking and reflecting. And so if we are for God, again, what does that look like individually and corporately in Crossbridge? And it means being missional in life. So we're going to flip a couple pages in our Bible. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 10 now. Paul says at the end of chapter 10, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do you all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now there's, there's so much to unpack here in these three verses because it's actually covering three chapters, chapters 8 to 10. And so we're not going to be able to go over it at all, but I'm going to try and do it some justice and explain enough just to hopefully give us a glimpse of what Paul's actually uh, getting at here, and then what that means for us. You see, when Paul talks about, you know, eating and drinking and doing it for God, he's not just talking about any eating or drinking. He's not talking about, like, we're going to have a, a barbecue later today, and we're like, this hamburger, like, I'm going to eat this. This bite is for, for God's glory, to honor him with this, this juicy bite of meat. You know, what he is talking about here is he's been talking about eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. That was a situation, a context that they were dealing with in the early church. Right? This was a theological and practical issue that the Corinthian Christians were, were facing. It was also an issue that was steeped in culture. And so Paul begins by kind of pointing out that eating food that has been sacrificed to idols is generally okay because idols aren't real. Right? There is only the one true and living God. And so these, this food was sacrificed to things that actually don't exist. However, Paul lays out three situations where maybe as you know, a Corinthian Christian back then, you would refrain. So first, when you're eating it in front of a newer Christian who can't make that kind of separation, right? That eating this food while also knowing that idols aren't real. Because many of them were steeped in that idol culture. Second, when you're eating it in the temple, not the Jewish temple, but the cult temple where idolatry was being practiced. And third, when a non-Christian invites you over for a meal, but out of concern for you, informs you that, hey, some of this food was sacrificed to idols. And so in these three situations, the reason to refrain that Paul is kind of highlighting is either because you're practicing actual idolatry by participating where it's happening in the temple, or you're, what you're doing when you eat this food is you're sending a message of syncretism. And syncretism is this fancy-schmancy word that uh, means the blending of two or more kind of religions or ideologies or worldviews, right? It's the adoption of certain uh, cultural matters which by themselves in most cases are benign. 
But for some, it could mean compromising the message of the gospel. And so what it's doing to these newer Christians and to these non-Christians is giving legitimacy to the belief in these idols alongside a belief in God. So by eating this food sacrifice to idols, it's saying to the newer Christian, look, you know, the idols which you gave up to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, to be for God, hey, when I eat this, I'm saying these idols are real. When, by eating this food sacrifice to idols, it's also inoculating those who don't know God, who are non-Christian, against the gospel by saying, like, you connect this food with these idols, because that's who you worship. And when you give me a heads up about it, and I still eat it, I'm saying, hey, idols are okay. I'm going I'm to worship these idols, and I'm going to worship God. I'm going to be for God and for all these other things, too. It's like if I, if I was vegan, and I came over to your house, and you gave me a heads up because you're considerate, and you're like, hey, look, like these burgers over here, you know, they're not vegan. This isn't beyond meat. This is just meat. And I took one, and I wolfed it down. I'm like, mmm, delicious. Like, what does that say about what I believe and what I think about what you believe? So there's a lot happening here. But let's kind of take all that and tie it back to our mark, right? Being missional in life. Like, first, we see from these few verses that, first, Paul is doing it for God to the glory of God. God is kind of determining, shaping how he lives, even affecting how he thinks about how, what to eat. Second, Paul does not aim to give offense to the Jews, to the Greeks, and to the church. And by listing it out this way, he's, he's covering everyone, basically. And, he's, and this kind of requires being able to bridge cultures, right? It's being able to know exactly what you believe, what they believe, what are the cultural matters of kind of indifference, and then what situations elevate those matters to make them actually matter. And that takes time. That takes sacrifice. That takes investment. That takes a lot of wisdom and knowledge and insight to be able to enter into that culture of their world and know enough not to give offense to them, but also know enough not to compromise your own identity and relationship with Christ, your own DNA in Christ. Right? Paul is, is speaking and bridging cultures in a setting that he's familiar with. Right? He grew up in that, that time. And still, it's complicated. It's hard. What about us? Like, let's not even think about going to a different country with an entirely different people group and, 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 and culture like some of our missionaries. Like, last week, we saw in, in Scripture how bridges were being formed in the, in, the New, in the New Testament church, one degree at a time. Like, a small step there and a small step there. Like, can we begin there and, and, and start to be missional? And as Paul ends, he reminds us that the purpose is that they may be saved. Right? That a family in Christ is being built. 
And so if we are for God, then who are we becoming? Let us become missional in life. When we think about the gospel, the gospel begins with come and see and ends with go and tell. Right? Come and see was John 1, right? Philip finding Nathaniel and saying to him, like, come and see this Jesus. Go and tell was Matthew 28. Like, go and make disciples of all nations. And so each of these marks, as we work through these the next few weeks, is going to have a question for us to think about, to reflect on, to, uh, to, to ask each other even. Again, not meant to be a checklist, not meant to be a badge of righteousness, but simply a way for us to start thinking, evaluating, even asking each other. Like, we can ask ourselves, we can change the I to a you, ask each other over lunch, when we catch up, in our, in our groups, in our gatherings. And our question for our mark today is, who am I bringing to come and see? Like, how am I living out this mission, this motive? And look, we acknowledge that even before we might bring someone, like, there's a lot of missional bridging that may have to happen before we even get to that point of, hey, come and see this Jesus. But this is where we're headed. And maybe it's not bringing them to this church. Maybe it's bringing them to that church. Or maybe it's just helping them to encounter Jesus after we, we bridge so many of these things. But as we do so, we are denying ourselves. We're stepping out of our comfort zones. We're challenging ourselves. We're getting our comfortable but we're doing this for God. We're taking up our crosses. We're following Jesus. We're orienting our lives and our purposes to God because we are for God. So let us be missional in life together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks to you for your goodness and your grace to us. Help us to see how worth it you are. That truly, as we say before, there is none like you. Nothing like your grace and your mercy to us. And so then help us to live in light of that. Help us that we would be for you and that would characterize all the things that we do individually and together as Crossbridge on Sunday, but also on Monday through Saturday. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.